Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. I sincerely apologise for things I have done, haven't done or may have done, but intend to put this behind me and get on with the vital job of meeting this week's panel. (laughs) First, it's former diplomat and host of the Doomsday Watch podcast, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Dorian. Uh, he's not very doomy in person. He's actually very genial. Um, <laughs> you've started a new war bulletin strand of Doomsday Watch. This week, Russia has begun a new assault on the Donbass region. Um, are Putin's chances of success much better here than during his failed initial assault on the whole country? And what can be done to thwart him on this front? Well, I think the situation is different in some ways, better for the Russians, but also worse. So probably overall it. It's not that uh, that much different from the, the earlier part of the war. So in one sense, the Russians have been uh, dug into the Donbass region or certainly bits of it uh, since 2014. Mm. Um, and their supply lines are a bit shorter. But equally, the, the Ukrainian military, the most experienced troops the Ukrainians have are also there. Um, so I think it would be a, a much more kind of static environment. Um, and... The other thing, the Russians definitely will have very low morale and a lot of their units are heavily depleted. They've lost a lot of weapons and other material. So I I think um, it will feel like not much is happening uh, and it will drag on for months and months. And what would the Russians consider a win here? Because when people talk about, um, you know, how this how this war might end. I mean, obviously, Zelensky is saying, and, and, and quite rightly, like, well, why should we give up parts of our territory to Russia? From Putin's point of view, what sort of territorial gain would he consider like, OK, that's I've, I've sort of achieved my aims. I've not achieved regime change. I have you know, lost um, enormous amounts of men and equipment. But this is, you know, this is this is the face saver. It's very hard to know because the only thing you could possibly imagine the Ukrainians accepting, and I'm not going to speak for them, but you can imagine them accepting Crimea because it's already a sort of fait accompli. It's already completely in Russian hands and, you know, arguably was part of the of Russian territory within living memory. Um, I think in the immediate term, though, the, the important thing to keep an eye on is Mariupol, which at the moment we record this is still technically a tiny area being held out by a dwindling number of Ukrainians. Um, it feels rather inevitable that, that 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 will come to an end and that will free up a lot of Russian troops to go elsewhere, probably. Um, so that might uh, allow the Russians to feel that they're in a slightly more advantageous position and p- possibly try to push si- some kind of settlement. But a- as you rightly say, I can't see uh, the Donbass area, which, of course, Russia now claims it are two independent countries. You can't see uh, Ukrainians ad- admitting to, to losing any of that, given mm. given what's happened. So, yeah, it's, it's not really obvious. Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye. Hi, Ian. Hello. It's expected that import checks on goods in the EU are going to be delayed for the fourth time. Um, will the godo of international trade ever show up? <laughs> could, could there be a fifth, a sixth, or are they moving towards a, a point where you could actually introduce them? No, well, there's a suggestion that they might just say, you know what, fuck it, we might never be able to do this. Um, and there's reports that they're saying, but well, instead of just doing this six-month delay... We'll wait until we fully digitized the border. Fully digitalized borders are, of course, the waiting for Godot. That is the great Godot emerging from from the depths of the of, of the sky. That's not. You haven't seen the play, have you? <laughs> I mean, I, I he doesn't do that. that. <laughs> 
Spoiler. <laughs> well, I sort of started the metaphor, and then I thought, I'm, I'm in danger here of speaking beyond my comprehension. <laughs> um, so, look, I mean, it was, it was said, you know, during the great Brexit sort of battles that it's actually really quite complicated to do specifically these kinds of checks. These are the sanitary and phytosanitary checks. So stuff on agricultural products and there's some lab testing on the border. There's lots of sort of physical paperwork. There's lots of veterinary requirements. And you look at it and lots of European companies are going to be like, well, fuck that for a game of soldiers. It's not worth us doing it. And of course, once you get that take place, you're reducing choice in supermarkets, sure, but you're also raising the price of products. So it plays directly into the cost of living crisis. So they're sitting there looking at it going, we must delay, we must delay. But that really key thing is that now finally... They're starting to just whisper these little hints to the press of maybe it won't just be a six month delay this time. Maybe we're not ever realistically, we're not ever going to do it. The genius of this, by the way, was that there was a spokesperson that spoke to Politics Home, which originally wrote the story, the excellent Adam Payne. And they said, um, this is the quote, it is precisely because of Brexit that we're able to set an import control regime which is best suited to our own needs, which in this case is none. So lucky <laughs> us, we get to have absolutely no import controls whatsoever. Good old, good old Brexit. Good old Brexit. <laughs> You've done it again. <laughs> uh, we're very happy to have as our guest this week a veteran commentator on French politics working in Paris since 1997. He's been a regular writer for The Independent, The Guardian and The Local, where he writes French news for English language readers. John John Litchfield, welcome. I'm very pleased to be with you. Uh, I accept veteran, can't quarrel with it. Because <laughs> <laughs> veteran seasoned, you know. One person having a great election campaign is Emmanuel Macron's official photographer who captured the president in a, a candid moment after a rally in Marseille with his shirt open, looking dashing like a centrist Errol Flynn. Um, is Macron's branding sort of politically effective um, or is it just how he likes to see himself? It's, it's difficult to know, really, because his branding seems to be somewhat all over the place on that. You remember he was he was photographed by the same photographer recently, sort of doing doing a Vladimir Zelensky and wearing uh, French army fatigues, um, which apparently he often wears when he's knocking around the Elysee Palace. <laughs> I think he himself said he was shown a lot of photographs and passed them all, and then later saw that one go out and regretted having put it out. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I I don't think it does any harm. I don't think it does any good. I'm not quite sure what what, um, effect it's likely to have or was intended to have on the campaign. I I don't think, you know, it seems to have caused much more excitement in the British tabloids than anywhere in the French media, but that's quite common with anything Macron does. Is he a good communicator? He's he's a very good communicator in a very sort of nerdish technical sort of way. You know, he's impressive. If you hear him talking for two hours, as I have on all sorts of subjects and questions thrown at him from right, left and centre, he is extraordinarily impressive. He sometimes isn't quite as knowledgeable as he thinks he is and and says things which, you know, uh, lead him into into difficulties. But um, he's a very good communicator in that way. In other ways, um, he is regarded by a lot of French people, and not just them, his political opponents, as, as someone who's arrogant, uh, cold, distant. Uh, he hasn't re- really conquered that. It's been with him for five years. It's kind of true and kind of not true. He's capable of being very touchy-feely. He's capable of being quite warm. 
but finally, I think he is a very much a loner, Macron. You know, he doesn't. He's not someone who has a lot of friends and a lot of close associates that he allows to control him or to run him. So I think, um, in some ways, he's a very good communicator. In other ways, one of his great failings has not been to communicate a narrative of what he's been trying to do in France to enough people. This week, Boris Johnson makes a plea for perspective in the Commons as he apologises a bit for breaching the lockdown rules that he set. Plus, we speak to John about the final round of the French presidential elections. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, following Brandon Lewis's assertion that Boris Johnson's partygate fines were akin to a mere parking ticket, we're asking the panel about their best worst excuses. But first, a quick reminder that we are on tour this summer. On Wednesday the 8th of June, we're at the Old Market Theatre in Hove. I'll be there with Ian, Roz and Alex discussing the grand political issues of our time, like how expensive seaside ice cream has become and what in the damn hell this government intends to do about it. (laughs) Tickets are on sale now and patrons have a special discount for all live shows. We'll see you there. Let's tuck in. On Tuesday, Boris Johnson returned to the Commons for the first time since being fined for breaches of Covid rules. Lindsay Hoyle granted the opposition permission for a vote on Johnson's conduct, which would then be transferred to the Parliamentary Privileges Committee. Ian, you're our man in Parliament, or watching Parliament on TV. Um, (laughs) How did his... uh, We'll start on Tuesday. How did his uh, quasi-apology go down? Well, fine, I suppose. I mean, he won't be sorry about the degree of sort of support he finds on his own benches, but there was a... I think, an element of silence and a recognition. I don't know whether you just project it, whether you see this kind of inner squirming in Tory MPs as they're listening to Keir Starmer. All of Keir Starmer's stuff at this point is mostly directed towards Tory MPs. Mm. I mean, these are the guys that he's talking to, being like, you've got to see what you're allowing to happen to your own party, to the country, to sort of the office of prime minister. So, I mean, I feel like you can detect an inner squirming there. But then the other part of me just thinks, you know, if, if there was a real soul to be squirmed, it would have squirmed some time ago. And really, we're in the realm of electoral calculations. And what it's going to come down to is them seeing the brute face of those electoral calculations. And that's going to come through local elections. It isn't going to come through stuff that's happening in the Commons. And what about PMQs? Well, I noticed that, that Johnson, again, trying to paint Starmer as a, as a Corbynista. Yes, like what is a it? A Corbynista in a sharp suit. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's quite telling, really, because it, it's, it's an extraordinarily weak attack. I mean, kind of one of the one things that the public has got about Starmer or that anyone could legitimately have got about Starmer listening to him, because he's often really quite vacuous indeed, is that he's not Corbyn, Mm. right? I mean, the sort of the thing that Starmer has to do is go, okay, apart from not being Corbyn and not being Johnson, what is it that you are? And no one can quite answer that question. But he took the whip away from me. You know, there's not really much more he can possibly do to do the I'm not Corbyn thing. And that has gone through to the public. So if Boris Johnson is in a position where his chief attack at the moment is you're like Corbyn, it suggests that he's in a very, very tenuous position indeed. And how likely are more fines for Johnson? Because there were a few different parties, sort of hard to remember them all now, but there are a few different ones, some of which haven't been dealt with yet. And and when is the best time for them to come out? (laughs) Well, I mean, the best for him versus best for us. (laughs) Right. Um, So best for him is after the local elections, undoubtedly. Um, best for us is before the local elections. I think he'll be the winner on that one. Although we don't fucking know because the Met aren't giving us 
anything. They're, they're a law unto themselves. We don't. We never know what they're up to, what kind of time scale, when they're releasing stuff. And to be honest, that is enormous universal irritation to people. I mean, it, it, it does irritate Downing Street, but it also irritates people that are following it in the press. We're just like, come on, man, you, you've got to give us some kind of workable timetable here. We don't have it. So we don't know. I mean, it could be today. It could be happening right now, or it could be after the local elections. And we think there's five other parties that, you know, could be potential fines for the prime minister. If, you know, the, the current <coughs> thinking is because... In the grand scheme of all those parties, the cake, the ambush by cake one was the more minor of the lot, a fact that they've made a lot out of. It suggests that he'll get fines for the others. I think that also speaks to the difficulty he has with his excuses, because at the moment, everything he says is about this, well, I couldn't possibly have known because it was just a quick chat in the cabinet mm. office room before other things. It was like, well, fine, but that might help you a bit with the current position. It weakens you substantially when it comes to your justifications for future fines. And that, again, speaks to the vulnerability that everything is just throw up the fucking defences. Like, get them up, because right now we're in real trouble and it doesn't matter what that's going to do to us in two weeks, three weeks' time. Just get them up for now, even if it's not in our medium-term interest to do so. It's amazing how short-termist he is, that there isn't, he hasn't got some sort of omni-excuse that would accommodate the sort of future... Yeah, the best we heard was from that minister, and I can't remember. There's been so much utter gaff from so many ministers, but one of them sort of said, "Well, you know, once you've got a spine for one, then really, the, you know, everything's done now. It's like a, you know, it's just a sort of an extension of the first." You sort of think, "Well, this is not, this is not an effective <laughs> argument that you've just put across." It's not how crime works. <laughs> no, typically speaking, that's not the approach of the police or any other member of society. It's not just like when you when you rob one bank, it's just like just do do them all. <laughs> <laughs> Go on a spree. Um, Arthur, moving on to this vote, Emily Thornbury has said that unless Conservative MPs look at their consciences and vote the right way, we're not going to get the sort of result that we should get. Um, is this vote tactically a win-win for the opposition? Either Johnson goes or the Tories look unprincipled and weak for not getting rid of him. I mean, is there any way that this vote could be bad for Labour and the other parties? Well, I, I suppose if no Tories abstain or very tiny numbers, then it, it looks a bit pointless. It underlines the impotence of, of the opposition when, when, when they've got the government has a big majority. But I think going back to what Ian was talking about, it seems to me that is, this is perhaps positioning for, for the future because there'll be two things. One is that the, the local elections, presumably, they'll be able to say, well, the Tories voted not to, uh, you know, censure Johnson for, for, for committing a crime, which seems like quite a strong line. But then also, if it comes out that, that as Ian was talking about, much sort of more serious part, parties where he was really partying sort of come out. And, and then you have to go back to these MPs and say, well, you thought it was fine for him to commit that crime. Are you now saying? And it seems at that point they're really going to squirm, I would have thought. So that, that's, that's my imagination about why they're doing it now. Um, Johnson again used the war in Ukraine as a reason not to get rid of him. I mean, we've talked before about the fact that Britain actually has a history of replacing um, prime ministers, even during wars where we're actually combatants. Um, when it comes to military support rather than accepting refugees, can the UK be proud of its role so far? Like I say, not a reason that you can't get rid of Johnson, yeah. but, but, but does he have a record there that he can point to and go, actually, we've done the right thing? Yeah, I think he definitely has. And it, it can't... It can't just be Johnson's um, magnetic personality that has endeared him to Zelensky. You know, that he's clearly very highly regarded there. So the UK, as probably everyone knows, they got in early. We were one of the first countries to, to supply weapons. We supplied these anti-tank weapons, which were very you know, important and useful, 10,000 of them um, in, in the battle around Kiev. 
Um, and we're kind of moving to the to the next stage now with more supplies uh, for, for the conflict in the east of the country. And if, I, I tried to see how it compares. I mean, it's not surprising the US has supplied more. But as far as I can tell from publicly available data, we're probably the number two or possibly the number three country uh, with Poland up there as well. It's interesting, though, this seems to, as with Biden, appears to make no difference whatsoever to uh, to these leaders' domestic fortunes. Yeah. Like, I, it, it doesn't, it's like they can get credit, you know, yeah. with Zelensky for that, but actually voters don't seem to care. Yeah, and I suppose part of the point there is that it's hard to imagine, you know, just to pick Prime Minister at random, Theresa May, you know, ploughing a very different line. Because if, if you're British... Uh, you know, looking firm on defence is a very solid sort of position for any prime minister. And unlike Poland or any other country in Central Europe, we're not a frontline state. So there's there's very little sort of real risk for Britain in, in getting stuck in. Um, John, how is Partygate playing in France? Like our British, I mean, like you said, the British media is sort of obsessed with, uh, with any chance to poke fun at Macron. Are, are British scandals entertaining to the French? Yes, they can be. It has, has had some play in the French media, mm. um, but obviously they have an election and wars going on and so on, so they have other things to distract them. So it has had pretty, you know, down-page down headlines and late-in-bulletin uh, coverage. But I think the French sort of, you know, have kind of written off Boris some time ago as not someone to be taken seriously, and this is, God, is just further proof of that, really. So it hasn't, hasn't, um, it hasn't made big, big stories here, no. And has Macron weathered any scandals to do with COVID regulations, whether, you know, that be sort of lockdown rules, you know, not wearing a mask at the right time? I don't know whether culturally that sort of thing would have less traction in France or he's been more cautious or just that there's ones that, you know, perhaps I've missed. Very early on, there was an occasion when um, there was a a big government uh, gathering, you know, which is kind of at the limits of of what was allowed for for other people. And it was, you could say, in a way, it was not so different. He said it was a proper government meeting. It wasn't an actual cabinet meeting, but it was a sort of uh, a dinner, I think, for for Mm. ministers and senior officials. That was very, very early on in the the first lockdown. Since then, none that I can think of, no. um, Nothing that compares to this. Is there that sense of the the one rule for them, one rule for us? It's been sort of talked about as like that is a very it offends the English sense of fair play that it really needles British people, you know, like queue jumping. Now scandals play out very differently in in different countries. You know, a sex scandal in Britain is very different to a sex scandal in France. Is there a similar sort of feeling in France of you know anger and a sense of offence? Um, if politicians are seen to be hypocritical. Well, you know, the French never let up an opportunity to be angry about anything. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, there is the same sort of pattern of many people feeling that um, the so-called elites, that Paris, you know, has has uh, the best of things and that the large parts of the, other, of the rest of the country um, are sort of left behind, you know, very similar arguments. Often, if you look at the figures, it's not true, you know, and the, the big cities, thriving big cities in France are subsidising the areas that claim to have been left behind. Um, but yeah, the, the same pattern exists, and it's part of the explanation of the strong vote for Marine Le Pen in rural areas and in sort of outer 
less well-off, less well-connected parts of, of, the, of the suburbs of the, these thriving cities. Um, Ian, apparently Johnson isn't featuring on many Tory leaflets for the local elections, but rival parties uh, are making up for it by putting him front and centre. <laughs> I mean, has he become a truly toxic brand only, you know, two and a bit years after the fact that he was the man that saved the Tory party? Yeah. Yes, the answer to that question is 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 yes. That's good. Um, that feels good. No, I thought you might enjoy that actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'd look at JL Partners poll uh, that was in the Times this week, from which came this. Are they called Wordles? The sort of clouds of of words. No, Wordle is a popular word game. Wordle is the word game. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're the cl- world cl- word cloud. Word, word cloud. Word. Yes. No, I should have. Words, if I thought yeah. that through, I, that would have been clear to me. Yeah. Um, I'm doing very well this what, week. I've what do they call those clouds of words? <laughs> I'm really on it with pop culture, and I want everyone to appreciate that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they, look, they asked they asked a lot of people. They got 72% negative uh, responses, and it's where you get this sort of word cloud with just the word liar in the middle in massive fucking writing. Now, that is typically a problem, but if I was in the Conservative Party, what would concern me is the combination of that with what happens when you drill down into policy areas. Mm. So, and you look at the, sort of the YouGov polling again this week, asking them, Breaking it down by area by area, you've got like minus 60. I think the government is handling inflation well. Minus 57 for immigration, minus 52 for tax, housing, NHS, economy, welfare, crime, transport, environment, Brexit on minus 24, education on minus 21. The only things that there's any positivity about at all are defense, I think, presumably because of Ukraine and terrorism. Uh, defense is plus, but even defense is plus three. You know, so you're not just looking. You are, yes, you absolutely have a problem with the leader and with the image and, and all of that. But you also have this this problem really in the in the engine room, in the guts of the party, as to what it is doing across the policy landscape. Well, I mean, and of course that's one reason why they're not they're not sort of thinking that getting rid of him is going to save going to save them. It's not just like, well, we would be doing brilliantly if not for this guy. Right. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, the main thing for them is ultimately there's no one better to take over. I mean, that that is just the main thing. If there was someone there, he would just, this is it, he would just not be here right now. Yeah. If there was so, if there was a Gordon Brown figure to the Tony Blair figure, you know, he would just not be here right now. But they're looking around and they think this is a party that is absolutely stacked with shite. And on that basis, we just don't know what to do next. Talking about immigration, even dead cat sceptics wondered if the Home Office's new scheme to offshore refugee processing to Rwanda was a deflection from Partygate, or at least the timing of it. But it's caused plenty of outrage anyway, so I don't know whether that's, that makes it a successful distraction <laughs> if everybody's um, furious. Do you think it will actually come to pass in the way that they are, are promising it will? Because a lot of the criticisms aren't just a sort of, sort of moral outrage but the sense that it's it won't work, that it's too expensive, that it's a bad scheme. It is all of those things, but you can still implement it and it not work and it will be happening and you'll be mangling up people's lives in it. I mean, we should be clear that the, the, the thing itself, the project itself, definitely isn't... Dead, should we just not use the word dead cat? It definitely isn't constructed... I think we should just ban it forever now. Not constructed entirely to get them out of Partygate because mm. they've been working on it for ages, yeah. at least a year. But the announcement... Almost certainly is. And that is part of the course. I mean, you know, when we speak out against the dead cats that shall not be named, it's not to say that governments never time anything for the effect on the press. That would be absurd and naive. They obviously do. So they've had it there for a while. And the, the outrage, of course, is part of the plan. 
Because when you get people like us outraged, and it is, you know, that you want to break open that leave-remain divide, you create a debate, a firestorm that is about something else that is more likely to fire up your base and appall the people that you want to be appalled. That is exactly what they're aiming for. And then we get trapped in that awful position, like the kind of position that we're in now, where you're like, if I don't get outraged, you're just watching the moral decline of the country. And if you do get outraged, you're playing their game. And there is just no answer to that. It's a horrific situation to, to, to be in. Arthur, an immigration minister, Tom Persglove, did the media rounds last week and couldn't answer simple questions about Rwanda, like its population, or whether he'd, he'd actually lived there himself. What is Rwanda like at the moment? What are the reasons why? Um, because, I mean, people who have never talked about Rwanda before, now suddenly seem to be working for the tourist board, just, <laughs> just saying how wonderful, don't stop talking Rwanda down. Um, what is it like? What would be causes for concern? Well, uh, if you're the government spokesman, you can reel off a, a, a true fact, which is this is one of the safest countries in Africa in terms of just sort of general crime and security. Um, but there is a reason for it being so safe, which is it is a massively authoritarian state. And of course, Everybody knows Rwanda uh, experienced a horrific genocide. And as a result of that, perhaps, um, the the sort of sinister genius who is the, the president, Paul Kagame, has created an incredibly tightly controlled country. Um, and a lot of people have concerns about human rights in Rwanda. And, and one group that is very concerned about human rights in Rwanda is the British government. Um, and last year, the British government, in, in a UN meeting, um, uh, made a statement where they, they called on Rwanda to uh, construct credible and independent investigations into allegations of extrajudicial killings, deaths in custody, enforced disappearances and torture. So you assume that the British government is going to be quite surprised by the British government proposing to send people there. Do you think that therefore people, refugees being, um, you know, granted sort of residency there, I mean, would have real reason to fear. I mean, it may indeed be a lot better than the country that they're fleeing. Yeah. But I mean, torture's not a word you want to no. You want to see when no. you're in your new home. No, indeed. And well, and and I mean, last year we took four refugees from Rwanda who were fleeing political persecution. So presumably they'll be quite. They'll have quite good reason to fear being sent to Rwanda. Um, obviously, in practical terms, I suppose if you end up in Rwanda and you've got no prior connection to the country and you accept that this is where you're going to end up, you know, it's it's definitely not the UK, it's definitely not what your plan was, it, it has a relatively vibrant economy. Maybe you can sort of say, well, as long as I steer clear of politics in, in my new home, I'm going to be all right here. But I genuinely don't think that anyone is going to get sent to Rwanda. It seems to me there are so many holes in this whole plan that it, this is a plan going back to what Ian was talking about, is, is designed to rile up uh, people uh, who listen to podcasts like this one. And of course, when the plan doesn't work, it will be possible to blame people like those of us who present this podcast and lefty lawyers. And I'm sure that's the point. Um, it, it just seems to me there are so many flaws in this plan. I just can't imagine it working. It, it has produced the remarkable spectacle of the Archbishop of Canterbury being accused of virtue signaling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Which is That's sort of in the job description. It's, li like it's literally his job. <laughs> He's setting himself up as a moral arbiter. <laughs> How dare he? And who was, the, who was the MP that went, well, in this country, we have the separation of church and state. Oh, wow. Oh, my Christ <laughs> Which was alive. magic. Which is obviously it's in our Declaration of Independence and our written constitution. <laughs> Signed by the framers. 
So it's not just Rwanda that they don't understand. That's what I want to make clear. Um, John, anti-immigration people in this country often complain that refugees travel through France, you know, a safe country, to get to Britain. Um, how hospitable is France? Like, what's, what's their system for welcoming or not welcoming refugees? Well, I mean, this is something, uh, you know, I've pointed out several times, but I mean, the, 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 the migrants who come to Calais and other um, channel ports trying to get to Britain are only a fraction of, of my illegal migrants who enter France, and they don't have to go across a piece of difficult water to enter France. They can come over the Pyrenees or the Alps or just across a flat border in Belgium or Germany. And so, I don't know, I tried to work it out once. It's probably something like less than one in 10 of the illegal migrants who who enter France, come to Calais and try to go to Britain. And, and the reason they come to France is to try and go to Britain. They don't come to France and say, no, don't like the wine here or we don't like the bread here, we're going to go to Britain. They've always intended to go to Britain. They have relatives in Britain. They speak a bit of English. They've been sold the idea mm. that the, the streets of Dover are paved with gold. And so they're obsessed with, with going to Britain. But there are lots of arguments on both sides about what goes on in Calais. But in fact, the, the French have been protecting the British immigration border there now for every one of the 25 years I've been covering France. And the, the latest problems are just a continuation of... It's always struck me as extraordinary that they didn't try small boats before. It was just a quite a new development, um, uh, which you know didn't used to happen. And the reason it happens is because the French, amongst others, have made it so difficult to get across that... Uh, across to Britain any, every, any other way. So how hospitable is France to other migrants? Not particularly. Uh, Marine Le Pen would tell you that it's too hospitable, uh, but, uh, um, you know, others would tell you that France is actually quite, um, quite strict and quite harsh on I- illegal migration. It's gone up. Uh, and it went down hugely during the COVID period, but it's gone up during the, the Macron era, which is one of the things she will no doubt be telling him tonight during the debate. But that's partly because of the fact we've had so many crises and refugee crises in the world that, um, that France also takes its share. And the people who come to France and want to stay in France tend to be from French-speaking countries or have some connection in France. So... Um, yeah, the, the suggestion that somehow the French sort of direct all migrants coming into illegal migrants coming in the country to the channel is, is is silly and absurd. Ian, the Mail victoriously announced that its polling showed that even a majority of Labour voters support the Rwanda scheme. Um, obviously, in polling, it's all about how you frame the question. Does it? Does that seem legit? No. Did the Mail make a, an embarrassing error <laughs> that did. they will be quick to correct? It did, and actually, I'm a bit embarrassed by Savannah Poles that, that conducted this. So one of the first things you don't do in polling is that any question, you should be deeply suspicious of any question that do you agree or not agree that X? Because what you will find is whatever the hell X is, more people will agree with it if that's the way it, it's structured. The best person right. for this is Anthony Wells at YouGov, who's just like basically any question that's structured like this isn't worth the paper it's written on. If you'll conduct a poll and put the opposite of X, so I think you would get a result that had about 5% going the other way. However, that wasn't the full extent of what they did. This is the question they asked. To what extent do you support or oppose the government's deal to send some who apply for asylum in the UK to Rwanda for their applications to be processed? So first of all, you have the problem with the do you support thing. Then secondly, you have a process of the fact that they didn't just describe the government policy, that it is not for their asylums to be processed. It is they are being sent there to live 
Yeah. They're not being given asylum in the UK. So they misrepresent the proposal and they structure it in such a way as to maximize the positive responses. And what do they get? They still get less than 50% supporting it. They still, even then, they don't get the result that they want, but they twist it in this way, whatever way they possibly can, to pretend that there's this big public push of support for it, which, in fact, does not exist. Um, I saw an ad, an online ad um, from the government, um, which said, our asylum system is broken. Let's take back control. <laughs> now, now oh, fuck's sake. leaving aside the wisdom of a party that's been in power for 12 years, saying that a very important part of the government is broken, mm. let's take back control rings a bell. Yes, it does, doesn't it? So they're trying to press the Brexit button. Do you think that that will work? And, of course, it's the part of Brexit that people like Daniel Hannan said was not really a part of Brexit. It wasn't about immigration. Mm. Um, But obviously whoever designed this ad thinks it is. Do you see it working? No, and in fact, I feel again, and I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to sound too optimistic because it's not like me. But what I see again is is a demonstration of vulnerability over and over mm-hmm. again. They've just got these markers, Corbyn. Basically, the 2019 election yeah, markers, yeah, yeah. Corbyn, immigration, Brexit, just hit the hit the fucking thing, hit it, hit it, hit it, and they keep on hitting it, and each time just a little bit less juice comes out, and at this point, it's just very dry down there. There's very little nutrition to be accessed. I don't know what this metaphor. Me and my fucking metaphor. I don't know what what the buttons do. What what are they producing? What's the button mounted on? No, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. But I think the point. I, I think I made the point. Whatever the hell it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next this week, on Sunday, the second round of the French presidential election will decide the country's leader for the next five years, with Emmanuel Macron going head-to-head with Marine Le Pen for the second time. Uh, John, this is almost almost your last chance to talk about this election. (laughs) Um, In the polling for the first round, Macron's ratings were falling, Le Pen's were increasing. Um, Now it's just the two of them left. Uh, It's all moving in the opposite directions. What's going on? Was this something that was this something that you expected that it would perhaps be getting less close? Yes, I think so. I mean, the first round polls were a bit strange, you know, because Macron was floating for months and months around 23, 24% at the head of everyone else. He zoomed to 30, 31 uh, just after the Ukraine war began. And then he started to fall down um, back towards his 23, 24, um, but never quite got there. He he ended up with 28. Uh, Marine Le Pen had been fighting it out with the other far-right candidate, Eric Zemmour, for the 30 or so percent of far-right voters in France. High enough, isn't it? 30 percent. And they'd been sharing it more or less. You know, they were 15, 15, or one was slightly ahead of the other. But after the Ukraine war began, Zamor, who's even more of a sort of outspoken Putin fancier than Marine Le Pen, started to fall very rapidly in the polls. There may have been other reasons for that, but it was certainly that what sort of set it off. And so it ended up with him having seven and her having something like 23, 24. So they're still sharing the 30%. So her apparent surge in the first round polls was essentially the, the far-right vote shifting from one to the other. There was no move from Macron to the far-right. There was no move from anyone else to the far-right. So that was slightly an illusion. It, it, but momentum creates momentum. And it also was more worrying that the, the second round polls, which are always a bit dubious before the first round has even happened, uh, started to show a much, much closer race between Macron and Le Pen, if those were going to be the two who made it into the runoff, as they did. And so there were some uh, French polls that showed them only two or three points apart. There was one rogue, I think, American poll that showed Le Pen one point ahead. 
But ever since Macron topped the poll in the only real poll that counts, the first round of the election, and beat her by four points, the momentum was all shifted back to him. And that's partly because of that result. It's partly because, in any way, the second round of a French election is when people start to look at the two and say, what on earth would this piece be as president? And people know what Macron would be as president, and some of them don't like it very much. But people started looking for the first time, amazingly, at some of the things in Le Pen's program, the fact that Le Pen has been so closely associated with Moscow over the years. And so it was, I think, inevitable that her, her poll ratings should start to fall and his would, would rise. And according to the latest tracking polls today, he's uh, 11, 12 or 13 points ahead of her um, going into the debate tonight. And risky thing to say, but I think Macron is going to be re-elected on Sunday. And that is an extraordinary exploit for Macron. I mean, he will be the first president to be re-elected for 20 years, that's one thing, but he'll be the first French president to be re-elected in the present system, which began in 1965, without having lost an election in midterm. Both Mitterrand and Chirac were elected, uh, who were re-elected, only worse so after they'd lost parliamentary power and they had governments oppose them uh, running the country. And so, in a sense, although they were re-elected, they were also uh, the, the sort of alternative when they were re-elected. It was French politics being very strange in that way, for Macron to be re-elected on Sunday will be an extraordinary exploit, and, and he will be. I mean, it seems possible to me, looking at the figures, that if Zemmour had done a bit better and split the far-right vote a bit more, then Mélenchon would have come in second. And how different an election would that be, a Macron-Mélenchon head-to-head, when, like you said, there's a 30% far-right, so I don't know where they go in that, in that scenario. And would, would, would Macron rather go up against Le Pen than, than, than to go up against the left? You're right. It could, it could have gone that way. And in fact, Mélenchon came very close to, to getting into the second round, even, even with Zemmour being as low as he was. But that was because, you know, essentially what happened um, a couple of Sundays ago was that everyone crowded in behind three candidates in the hope of getting their person into, into, the, into the second round. And so the left vote for other candidates, five or six other candidates, all sort of moved into the into the Mélenchon, Mélenchon camp. Um, so he, he, he almost made it. Had there been a Mélenchon-Macron uh, second round, uh, Macron would have won by even bigger score than he does against Le Pen, probably. But I think Macron would much rather be in the second round against Le Pen, even though that's a, a tighter squeeze than against Mélenchon. And the reason is that if you have a second round which is Mélenchon against Macron, it paints Macron as the right-wing candidate who was winning both far-right votes, as he mm. would, partly. Mm. If he is uh, the centrist candidate who wins against Le Pen with left-wing votes, it leaves him in the centre ground where he wants to be. It, you know, it sort of, it's a much more comfortable position for him. It doesn't mean that he won't be hated by many people on the left just as much as they do now, but it, it, it could, preserves his position in the middle of the electoral ba- battlefield, and he he therefore would have been, I think, uncomfortable even in defeating Mélenchon very, very um, easily. Uh, he'd much rather be up against Le Pen. Um, Arthur, how has Macron fared during the Ukraine crisis? Has he, he's obviously, he keeps trying to have these, or he keeps having these kind of dialogues with Putin um, that, that don't end well. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, is he striking a, an impressive figure? Well, I think it's, it's possibly something that looks different depending on which side of the uh, the sort of channel you're on. Um, the 
because there's been a certain amount of, of slightly predictable voices on the right here suggesting that, you know, having this diplomatic dialogue is somehow kind of, you know, unmanly and, and giving in to Putin. And of course, you've had Ben Wallace talk about the whiff of Munich, which which I think was, you know, completely unjustified. And at the beginning, France took a slightly different position in terms of not publicizing the uh, weapons that it was giving to the Ukrainians. So to some extent, it was easy for people to claim they weren't doing anything where they probably were. Um, having said that, you know, France's head of military intelligence did have to resign having failed to sort of predict uh, the invasion in the way that the CIA and MI6 appear to have. So, you know, p- perhaps Macron himself was slightly blindsided by having having bad advice. But from what I can tell, and, and John may be able to correct me, is that his position on Ukraine certainly hasn't done him any harm in, in the election. And, and as John seemed to observe, it, it possibly helps him. Um, now, it looks as if, you know, we don't need to be worrying too much about a Le Pen presidency. Um but when the polls were looking tighter, I'm sure that people in other countries were sort of thinking about the implications. Would that have been as disastrous for the the EU and NATO and indeed the context of Ukraine as, as it would appear? I think it would have been pretty bloody awful. Uh, clearly, you know, the EU, you, France is, is now, you know, the, the number one sort of military power in the EU and, and of course, a, a huge economy as well. Um, uh, Le Pen says she wants to withdraw France from NATO's military command. Admittedly, that's just taking France back to a position it held until the Sarkozy era. But uh, clearly, uh, she would be a spoiler. She'd be a bit of a sort of a super Victor Orban character um, in both of those organizations. And so I think it would be very bad, particularly the the sort of the sense that Europe is losing control of kind of normality. But having said that, if you think of the Trump case study, a lot of what we might call sort of deep state actors in the US took various actions behind the scenes to limit Trump's crazier mm-hmm. ideas. I think you could you could have expected something like that. You can expect something like that to happen in France. And the other thing to remember is that, that um, you know, Le Pen could be president, but it, uh, it's not clear that she, her party would win the assembly elections. So she'd have a prime minister from a different party. So it's, I, I suppose she would be more circumscribed than we might imagine. Um, Ian, you've written a bit about this. Um, where are the Mélenchon voters going? And is Stop Le Pen uh, a less potent message this time than it was five years ago? Yeah, evidently. I mean, we've got the Mélenchon, um, the public consultation they put out, because he said, don't vote for Le Pen, and then couldn't bring himself to say, vote for Macron, which rather logically follows, given there's only two options. <laughs> so by virtue of the fact that he couldn't bring himself to say, I think tells you something. Um, and, you know, we were asked to wait. They put out this, this consultation in which there was no option for voting for Le Pen. Um, and it came out at 33% said they'd vote um, for Macron and 66% said they would abstain, leave their ballot paper blank or spoil it. Now, that echoes what we saw from an Ipsos Opera Stiera poll on Saturday that, again, had exactly 33% uh, for Macron, 16% for Le Pen, and over half basically declining to give a view. And that gives you an impression of where they are. Now, I find that just abysmal, really, because it will be exactly the same here, I think, with, with the left. And I think you could see similar things all over the place. It's just the left, parts of the hard left, losing the ability to evaluate least bad options. 
And if you don't have the capacity in politics to do that, then you're, you're just in the fucking playground. You know, you're not doing politics. You you go paint some fucking pictures that will always be in black and white of the colors, black and white over and over again, because you can't do any of the functional things that are required to secure political outcomes. You're gone. Now, think back, because this is not something that has been in the French left forever. I mean, you go back to 2002. Remember Le Pen's father? ran against that crook, Chirac, okay, conservative crook. At the time, everyone knew he was a conservative crook, right? But the Communist Party, the Socialist Party came out for Chirac. Why? Because anti-fascism is what matters. And right-thinking, decent-minded people, whether they're conservatives or liberals or centrists or socialists or whatever, go, right, when the fucking far right opposing any kind of threat, any kind of threat at all, you close ranks and you shut that shit down. Now, that was something the French used to be able to do. And right now, when you look at the French left, that is not what we are seeing. Um, John, is, is that how you characterize uh, Mélenchon voters? Is it, you know, is it the... The, the, the very left, the hard left, or are there the, are there kind of people there that, that actually aren't, you know, that particularly sort of ideologically wedded? You know, what explains this two thirds of Mélenchon voters that would rather abstain? Well, can I, just to somewhat um, disagree with Ian, which I'm reluctant to do. You can come again. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's an instant ban. <laughs> but yeah, I think we have to distinguish, first of all, between Mélenchon's hardcore vote, which was only about 9 or 10% until he started to surge towards the end, and the people who voted for Mélenchon uh, a couple of Sundays ago, because a lot of those were people who were previously supporting much softer left candidates. And the other people who did finally stay with it at 3 million votes or so who stayed with those other candidates are breaking much more for Macron than the Mélenchon voters. And the Mélenchon electorate of 22% is voting, breaking much more for Macron than the hardcore uh, Mélenchon supporters who were people who answered that poll. They were people who have been his supporters all along. So you have to distinguish, I think, between... La France Saint-Semise, uh, the, the Mélenchon supporters, and, and the, the wider left. And the difference between those two is why Macron is now so far ahead in the polls um, and further ahead than he seemed he would be. Who are the Mélenchon supporters? It's very, very disparate electorate. 69% of French Muslims who voted a couple of Sundays ago voted for Mélenchon. He has a big support in the immigrant and communities or people who, who are from immigrant backgrounds. Um, he has a big, big support amongst young people. He was by far, the, the, uh, not by far, but certainly the, the, the most popular candidate amongst 18 to 24-year-olds who don't vote that much, but those who do vote, vote um, by majority for, for Mélenchon. He doesn't have, he has a little support amongst sort of um, blue-collar workers, but less than, certainly less than Le Pen does, not many more than Macron does, in fact. He has very little support in rural or outer suburban France. It's a kind of urban or kind of inner suburban vote to a large extent. So it's difficult to define his his electorate. Yeah. But that 22% that voted for him is not his electorate alone. It's, it's people that went to him to try and push him into the second round so they wouldn't have this choice in the second round between Macron and Le Pen. Um, well, last week, uh, one listener was a little aggrieved that we were we were too harsh on Macron and perhaps did not talk about his um, his record. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, you've written about his huge ambitions to kind of wrestle with with these long sort of seemingly intractable problems like pension reform and really leave his mark on France. So far, obviously, you know, it's looking like he's going to get another term. So far, how much has he succeeded in doing that? Is there already something you could go, OK, this is going to be his legacy? 
Well, you know, you have to think his term has been a very, very troubled one. You know, uh, the COVID um, pandemic uh, meant that um, for, for more than a year, not much could happen. And his reform program was, was blown off course. There was the whole Gilets jaunes or Yellow Vest protest quite early on. And now also the Ukraine war. So he's had more crises to deal with in his five years than any previous president in the Fifth Republic since 58-65, wherever he decided it began. Um, what has he achieved? Well, the French unemployment is now down to, I think it's uh, 7.4%, which is the lowest for 13 or 14 years. Youth unemployment is a long way down. Um, is that all he's doing? Clearly not. But I think some of his policies in trying to make the, the make it easier to hire and fire in France, to, to increase investment in France, um, and uh, change the, the, the way the apprenticeship systems work in France have been successful and are starting to be successful. So he's done things that neither the centre-right or the centre-left, who've talked about them before, uh, managed to achieve. Uh, some of them he started when he was finance minister under Hollande in the socialist government before. So he has some things he can point out. A lot of what he, other things he promised, like changing the pension system, no, it didn't happen. It seemed to be about to happen, then COVID came and it had to be pulled as a reform. So his record is is patchy. One of the things he's done, and I think perhaps doesn't get much credit for outside France, is within the European Union, he's changed things quite a lot. He persuaded uh, Angela Merkel that Germany could take part in some kind of huge EU investment program post-COVID in which it would be the European Union that borrowed the money and then lent it out again to, to its member states, something that she had previously refused to do to help the Greeks and others when that crisis is going on. So he, he has kind of shifted things within the European Union in quite significant ways. Um, he was banging on about the need for the EU to have a proper sense of strategy and defence policy, to have a, a kind of thinking brain, not just to be a market, um, and not rely entirely just on America to look after European interests, which it wouldn't always do, um, long before the Ukraine war came along. So, yeah, he, I think he's done th some things that are quite important. I think over, overall, um, his, the fact that he's so detested in parts of France is sometimes quite difficult to understand. And if people who only pay, people outside France who only pay attention to the presidential elections, you know, will think that the centre-right and the centre-left are dead. Um, and you get quite a different picture when you look at the assembly elections. And you've explained how, for example, Mélenchon's you know, coalition here is not actually representative of people that really support him. It's everyone sort of rallying around. It's the relative collapse of Zemmour is people rallying around Le Pen. Do you think the French system makes sense where, where really the assembly elections and the presidential elections are giving you such different uh, pictures of, of French politics? Well, I, I often think that um, Brenda from Bristol, if she was Brenda from Bordeaux, would have been having a sort of... Um, nervous breakdown, having four elections in the space of, what is it, seven weeks or four election days. Uh, yeah, it's weird, isn't it, to have two rounds of a president election and two rounds of a parliamentary election. Um, they're not so different in the sense that um, ever since this president system began in, in the mid-60s, there's never been an occasion in which the parliamentary election has gone against the recently elected president. There have been two in which presidents lost power in mid-term, but that was different. So it, it, it's going to be difficult for Macron to get a, a majority this time. I think he probably will be able to couple together a majority. But the point you make is a good one. I mean, what was absolutely striking about the, the, the votes, if you count them in a certain way in the first round, is that something like 32% voted for left-wing candidates, of whom 
22% were voting for, for Mélenchon at the end of the day. About 32%, as I said before, voted for the two or three far-right candidates. And about 32% voted for Macron and the remains of the centre-right, the sort of pro-European consensual centre-right. So you've got France now, which is a country that invented left versus right, and the idea of this kind of binary politics, um, now split very, very evenly into three camps. And, it, it, you know, it's one of the reasons why Macron will win on Sunday, because finally that left camp is more likely to go with him and, and mm. wait the, 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 the result in his favour than with the far right. But then when it comes to the parliamentary elections, how do those even thirds of reflect itself in the, in the vote all across France? Very difficult to say. So the country is becoming divided rather dangerously, I think, in three ways. Um, and that's going to make it very difficult for Macron to govern, I think, in the next five years, even if he gets a parliamentary majority, because two-thirds of the country will regard him as an upstart who had, was not really wanted by the country. And I look forward to the next election as being a much more dangerous election than this one, um, because by then I think um, Le Pen will be gone, uh, Eric Zemmour and the people around him will still be there, and I think they will have created a much more powerful movement over the of the right and the far right, uh, nationalist, anti-European right, which I'm not saying will, but you know, will be much more uh, of a threat in 2027 than they have been this time. Yikes. Thanks, John. Before we go, let's take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Arthur, what have you got? It's related to two stories that are definitely above the radar, which is about um, immigration, asylum seekers, refugees. Of course, we've talked about Rwanda. And prior to that, there was a lot of talk about Ukrainians coming to this country and that they would be, you know, they'd stay in people's homes. But I wanted to talk about uh, the housing for, for existing uh, asylum seekers, because it, it, this is a story that sometimes get a bit of coverage, but not very much. And basically what, what's happened is the government has contracted out the responsibility for housing these uh, very uh, vulnerable people uh, to a series of private companies. And these companies are making a mint from housing people, many of whom, of course, have faced traumatic uh, experiences, experience in war and so on, uh, housing them in completely uh, unsanitary and inappropriate uh, conditions. Uh, so the, 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 there was a case report in January of... Um, of a series of flats in West London that were basically unlivable. Um, I've got to know a, a, a family near where I live in Gloucestershire, who a Kurdish family, family of four, living in a single room, a shared bathroom. They have no access to a kitchen. They can't cook their own meals. Um, and, and, of course, they're, they're forbidden from seeking work or anything like that. And these people are, are just hidden from normal society. The, the, the places where they're housed tend to be on the edge of cities. So they, they, it's impossible for these people to try to integrate into, into wider society. But I think the thing that's really awful is, is the money that's being made. So uh, one of the businesses here, uh, the directors paid themselves a dividend of £7 million pounds. Uh, in 2020. And that's £7 million of our taxpayers' money, which has been extracted from human misery. So I just feel it's something that we should hear more about. There should be more reporting of it. Mm. And we should be holding the government to account. Thanks, Arthur. Yeah. There, there is some movement, by the way, on asylum seekers' right to work through a potential Lords Amendment, which is getting an unusual amount of Tory support and is being sold quite heavily on Tory values. Hard work, that's right. what improves life. There's a, there's a little hint that maybe before the session closes, there could potentially be a victory on the right to work or at least some more 
more optimistic people in the asylum movement have started yeah. to talk quite positively about it. It's possible. That's good to hear. Um, mine was, it's not really, I mean, it never is. It's never really under the radar. Um, it's ch tech changes, which, especially on Twitter and on Google. So I've noticed during this French election and during the German election that preceded it, have kind of almost completely changed the possibilities of following what's going on in foreign countries. So before, no matter how European you felt and how sort of ingrained and embedded you were in this continent, you really had a significant obstacle in following what was going on in mm. France, in Italy, in Germany. I mean, unless you can speak other languages, but I'm a complete barbarian and I'm completely unable to do any why, of that. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? It just seems like a lot of effort. And Google has now done the job for us. So now what I think is extraordinary is you can go to any, you know, you can just go read the newspapers of that country and there will be it will automatically translate it for you all the tweets by politicians by journalists you actually get the same with ukraine you can just follow what what people are saying in ukraine about so it is an one of those things we don't really talk about and is fundamentally there's basically almost no excuse for following your domestic media's coverage of another country at this stage certainly not of their election cycles and has the potential if we were lucky to create a more kind of European sense mm. about people, especially about people who follow politics and maybe gets them as invested in European elections as historically they have been in the American elections. Um, John, what about you? Well, thank you, Ian, for trying to put me out of your job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you said I was wrong about something earlier, so I obviously had to counter. <laughs> well, look, I, I, I would like to mention Denmark, which is, doesn't get mentioned very much um, anywhere, really, but um, was because we were the sort of semi-detached country in the EU when we were there, it wasn't sort of remarked on so much that Denmark has always been at least quarter detached, still isn't in the euro, had uh, had an opt-out of the uh, idea of a European defence policy, didn't go along with that idea at all. Uh, as, as, you, as you well know, both, um, I think, Austria and Finland are talking about joining NATO because of what's happened in Ukraine. The Danes are actually have taken action, I think, this week to um, reverse the opt-out they have um, on European defence policy. And I think it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting as a, yet another example of Putin having shot himself several times in each foot. And also, and it's an example, I think, of how the European Union is going to emerge changed stronger, I hope, from, from the Ukraine war, which is not the most important fact about the Ukraine war, obviously. But I think that the idea of a European defence policy, which has been mocked and perhaps rightly in Britain for many years, is going to sort of make its way um, as a result of what happened um, in, in Ukraine. And the fact that the, the Danes are wanting to get aboard is quite interesting. Thanks, John. Um, so mine was something which is, is, is under the radar in the sense that one of the big narratives of recent years has been cancel culture and censorship from the left. And at the moment, what we're seeing is a huge censorship campaign from the right in America, which is sort of sweeping through uh, school boards and libraries, removing books uh, like Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me, Maurice Sendak's In the Night Kitchen, because the boy is nude in one uh, scene when he falls into some milk, um, and children's biographies of Rosa Parks and Nelson Mandela. And some of the librarians who refuse to remove these books have been fired um, just recently, Florida rejected 54 maths books, 41% of the submissions, for reasons including critical race theory, apparently. How, in a maths book? In a, how one puts critical race theory into a maths book, I do not know. Um, I do find it absolutely um, terrifying. You know, that this really goes back to sort of, you know, the Scopes monkey trial mm -hmm. and this long tradition in, in, in American conservatism of just... Um, 
you know, being sort of anti-learning and making up reasons, you know, to do with to do with what they call racial extremism or, you know, pornography. So basically any nudity is now just considered pornography. Um, but it did list, give us good quip from a Democratic State House member who said, I get it. The goal of math is to solve problems, which the Republican Party of Florida doesn't like to do. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the show. Thanks to a very rare mannel we've had this week. Circumstances conspired to make this a very masculine uh, panel. But I think we did okay. The, the testosterone in here is oh, yeah. off the scale. It's very it's intense. It's a very, been a very sweaty, burly <laughs> atmosphere in here. Um, thank you to Ian. Thank you very much. Arthur. Good pleasure. Thank you. And to our special guest, John Litchfield. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. So it's hello from me and thanks to Marek Laskowski, Karen, Raj Rajendram, Darren Cook, Richard Disley-Jones, Richard Smith, Rachel Bostock, Jeff Hearman, Angela Pert and Maris Williams. Uh, hello, and many thanks from me to Dave Borman, Liam, Wendy Martin, Sean O'Neill, Adrian Gray, Beth Elker, John Brady, Hannah Swarbrick, Joseph Dobbs, and Paul Dykes. And many thanks from me to Dan Wollaston, Graham Campbell, Sweeve, LD, Simon Smith, John Parsons, Augustina Okoto, Dave Glencross, James Hall, and Michael D. Pyrie. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Arthur Snell and guest John Litchfield. The producers are Yelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archbold. Lead producer Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for patrons. Brandon Lewis drew mockery for his comments this week comparing Boris Johnson's partygate fines to a speeding ticket, or rather a series of speeding tickets. This government are specialists in excuses, so this week we're asking the panel the worst excuse they've given to get out of something. Um, hopefully not one that someone has used to get out of something with me, because <laughs> this could get very uncomfortable. <laughs> no, no, I really, I really did hurt my arm that time. It was bad, it was bad. I'm sure yeah. you did. Now I have the receipt. <laughs> Do you have lady? the x-rays <laughs> you can send me? Um... Arthur. There's an episode of Friends where Chandler gets sent to Yemen for his job, or he says he has, in order to get out of an awkward relationship. Now, I, I was once, once sent to Yemen for my job. Um, and that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our bite-sized weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and see you next week.